Hello everybody, Martin Keenan here and today I have Dr John Otter with me. John is a hospital epidemiologist, he's well known around the world, published many many papers uh, and he's recently moved to a large teaching hospital in London called Guys and St Thomas's. Uh, now John's done a couple of things I've been interested in and he's just recently held a big meeting at his organisation where he spoke on the future of infection prevention, which is very timely in this week of International Infection Prevention Week. But before we start on that, John, you've also, on your Reflections blog, recently posted about a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. So do you want to just can we mention that one briefly first before we start talking about the future? Yeah, we can. But before we do that, I, I must just reflect to the listeners the difference in this podcast. The last time we spoke, we were in Liverpool. Um, you were sitting on the end of my spare bed in the hotel room. Yeah, and it, it was, was very, very casual. Different. And we're on Zoom today, and it's just so different. It's rubbish, isn't it? No, it's not Not as nice as doing it face-to-face, but needs must. But clearly you can't see, but Martin looks like he's all ready for the King's speech. Um, I feel like we should be doing some vocal warm-up exercises. Mm, Don't think so. (laughs) Come on then, tell me about this paper. Yes, so uh, this paper on monoclonal antibodies, I'm absolutely, totally uh, an enthusiastic amateur when it comes to monoclonal antibodies. I I know very little about them. So uh, only that you are giving an individual uh, a shot of uh, antibodies, not antibiotics, yeah. I made that mistake, actually. I sent one of the first emails I sent out to the whole new team was about this study and how wonderful and interesting it was. Um, and I, I proofed the email um, very carefully, as you do, because it was one of the first emails to the team and entitled the email monoclonal antibiotics, which created <laughs> lots of confusion in the team. Uh, to uh, err is human, John. So actually, you showed frailty early on. So that's actually not a bad thing in leadership, oh, yeah. I don't think. <laughs> Yeah, so a couple of deliberate areas thrown in. Yeah. Okay, so monoclonal antibodies, you, you, you're giving a, a, an individual a shot of immunity. Um, mm. And we know that this technology works really well in other settings. Um, as far as I was aware, it hadn't ever been looked at for a, a prophylactic impact to reduce the acquisition of COVID. So this was a big study in the New England Journal of Medicine published recently, which looked at um, a household transmission of COVID in many, many households across the United States and in some parts of Europe. It was a big study, uh, properly randomized. Um, and they looked at the impact of giving somebody a monoclonal antibody uh, versus a placebo when they, were, when they had a household contact exposure situation. So remember the household tested positive for COVID um, either symptomatic or asymptomatic. Then they gave the monoclonal antibodies or the placebo within a couple of days, and they looked at outcomes in terms of acquisition of uh, COVID infect- SARS-CoV-2 infection, either symptomatic or asymptomatic, mm-hmm. and also, crucially, outcomes of an infection if it did occur. So how, what proportion were symptomatic, asymptomatic? Um, if the patients or the individuals, I should say, not patients in this context, if the participants of the study became symptomatic, how did they do? Um, and what, were, what was the level of severity of the outcome? Hmm. Uh, and what they found was the monoclonals had a dramatic impact in, in reducing both the, uh, the frequency with which transmission occurred in the household uh, and the, um, the outcomes of the, uh, the infections when they did occur were, were lesser with, with the monoclonals. 
Okay, so I mean, the control group had nothing, so you know, and both groups had no vaccine. So how do we know that this actually isn't more effective than, or, or as useful as actually vaccinating people in the first place? Because uh, you know, you, you, this presumably is only going to work particularly well for people who haven't had vaccine. Or would you give vaccine plus this? Or you know, the one thing that really wasn't mentioned in the paper actually was the cost of this. You know, could it be actually cost effective? So, so, so they did some work at baseline in the study to pull people out of the study who had either been vaccinated or who had had previous infection and natural immunity. So, so they, they did some serum cells at baseline, really nice methodology to pull them out. So they were looking at sort of uh, immuno naive, if you like, individuals at the start and just really understand whether the the monoclonals on their own without any background protective immunity made a difference. But you, but the question about how this fits and interacts with vaccination is a really important question. We don't know. The study doesn't tell us. It may be that, that monoclonals um, have an effect at reducing uh, transmission if, a, if an individual is vaccinated, but it, it certainly won't be as big an effect. And mm. if, I, if I was a betting man, I would say that there would be an effect because we will, we talk often and we hear often about this idea of waning immunity. So from the point of vaccination, the level of antibodies in your system goes down and your ability to mount a, a rapidly effective immune response reduces, uh, which is why we're talking about top-up vaccinations and, and multiple doses of vaccination to, to yeah. reprime the immune system. So, so I, I, I don't think monoclonal antibodies would be redundant if you have a vaccinated individual. It would depend when and how uh, and with what level of response the individual had. I mean, certainly I, I can see it in some groups who aren't actually unable to produce antibodies. So in which case, extremely useful in that group. But I, I wonder if where you've got these you know, people who are naive to exposure and they haven't had the vaccine. There's often a reason why they haven't had the vaccine. Would there be a similar reason why they would actually refuse to get somebody else's antibodies if they're refusing to get the vaccine? Yeah. You know, are they anti-interventionalist completely? I, I, I really no idea. Really. I don't know. I can't tell you. Yeah, I'm not one. <laughs> no, well, no, not me. I mean, I had my jab, my booster at the weekend and got my flu vaccine by accident at the same time. Anyway, that's, that's what happens when you get old. Uh, I mean, I, we're also I thought what might be useful is if if you got a new variant of concern which was seeming to get past the vaccine, the feeling is that these would work and be effective. Do you think? Yeah, possibly. I think. I think maybe configurable as well uh, mm. and we, you know you could rapidly tweak the recipe uh, and create monoclonals to uh, to meet the, the the vaccine escape variant mm. um, i mean i suppose i suppose to your previous point just thinking that through we really really don't want the prospect of monoclonal antibodies to in any way reduce the, the message or the imperative to be vaccinated you know for a number of reasons but pr principally that that Vaccination is always going to be available to you because we have such an amazing program pretty much in many parts of the world, mm. uh, whereas monoclonal antibodies are going to be available for the foreseeable future to a very small handful of individuals. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about really is how do you actually get it to people? You know, you can have a max vaccination center, but actually having monoclonal antibodies for a group, you know, what chance actually is 
if you actually get a case in a household of you actually being able to get somewhere or them to be able to get to you to give you the monoclonal antibodies. You know, it, it, this is a nice study and it shows it can work, but I'm, I do wonder about the cost effectiveness of it. And, yeah. you know, it's it's fantastic piece of science, but I'm not sure how practical it is, for, you know, for in, a, in a mass use setting or scenario. Yeah, I agree with you. So I saw this study as a proof of concept. Can mm. monoclonal antibodies prevent in contact, uh, transmission in a close contact scenario like you get in a household? Mm. Um, but I, I don't think you'd ever be rolling out a mass monoclonal antibody uh, program to reduce house, household transmission of COVID or anything else. Um, I just don't think the, the economics would work given the cost of these things, which is, you know, I understand runs into thousands of pounds for those. I don't know the yeah. exact. Yeah, so it's really compared with the at cost vaccine like the AstraZeneca, it's really not going to be cost effective, is it? Exactly. But the exciting thing for me is can we take the principle of this study and apply it to people we consider extremely vulnerable or perhaps those who are immunized, but we consider to have be unlikely to have mounted an antibody response, or those Mm. who we test their their blood serum and we can't find antibodies despite vaccination. Is that where we begin to think about monoclonals as part of that kind of uh, approach? It's still only going to be for a rich country, though, to be able to do this, isn't it? It's it's not for the world. So it's I'm not sure about the equitable nature of it either, but there we are. Okay, let's move on to uh, the future then. So what do you think are the priorities going forward now for infection prevention and control? Because hopefully the, we're possibly seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of COVID that isn't the train coming in the opposite direction, I'm hoping. So we need to start thinking about infection prevention and control again. And um, can you run us through your top few priorities and we'll have a chat about that? Yeah, okay. So I I think the most important priority for an infection prevention and control service is having an infection prevention and control (laughs) service. Yeah. Because, you know, we we, we get, uh, well, I get complacent in my thinking and, and I think that how things are set up in little old England in the United Kingdom is how things are set up in the rest of the world. But that's absolutely not the case. Mm. There are many parts of the world, probably the majority of the world, where there's very little funding for infection control programs at all. Um, And there's very little investment, intellectual and otherwise, in the concept of infection prevention. And it's back to the dark old days of the 1990s where you might have an infection control nurse covering a large hospital if you're lucky. Mm. Uh, But on the other hand, you might well not. Yep. So I think I think the first step to any of it is having uh, an infection control program that, that's funded um, and uh, respected by the organisation. So it's no good having a well-funded team that knows everything and writes great policies if nobody ever listens to you. So mm. there has to be that organisational level buy-in to the IPC and the stewardship agenda, uh, and that needs to filter down from the chief executive uh, and the lead management, the C-suite, however it's structured, need to be on message about the importance otherwise you know it it won't go anywhere yeah i mean i've always said lukewarm support is worse than no support to be honest because you know if the senior management don't appear to be interested then nobody's going to get interested whereas if you've got passionate support from top managers then you have half a chance of getting other people to become engaged because they know they know their bosses i mean think about you know you're right about the teams because it seems to me in many parts of the world where amr is much more of a challenge actually you have less of an infection prevention and control infrastructure to be able to support activity in that area you know we, we hear 
about high levels of antibiotic resistance in in parts of Asia, for example, and where infection control teams still are really quite small and under resourced in many areas. That's a challenge. Yeah, and, and the biggest thing is that you wouldn't even know about it because part of the function of the team is to is to be the, the eyes and ears of the organization to do the surveillance mm. to work mm. out what's going wrong. Um, and without that initial investment, you don't even have that. So you have nowhere to start. Can I ask you a question? Am I allowed to do that? Yes, of course. It is a discussion after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, um, you've lived through a big change in how the infection control programs are structured in the UK. That's a really nice way of saying that I'm old, John. Thank uh, you. Well, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> well, I was going to say that. But not yeah, you were. But anyway, because you're old, you've lived yes. through a big change in the way that infection control teams are structured and funded in the UK. Yeah. What, how transformational has that been to your practice? Um, well, completely transformational because I didn't know much about what was going on. You know, when I started back in infection control in 1990, I was also the tissue viability nurse covering probably about a 1,000 beds plus all the nursing homes and GPs. And the microbiologist I worked with was covering two organizations. And, you know, as I said, I was also tissue viability. So you actually didn't do much in the way of surveillance because if you were in the building, nobody was going to do it. And back in those days, I knew every MRSA patient by their first name. And that changed very rapidly. So actually having more people in the team and more support, and as IT comes in, you start to learn more, then you can actually look more, and then you actually find more problems. You know, the more it, the, I found the more team members you get, the bigger the workload, to be absolutely honest, because you start to look and find more, and then you start to be able to try and influence practice more and try and intervene more. I can still remember the day when we got ICNet in and I was able to identify all the people with ESBLs. I thought, great, start isolating them. Started the algorithm on the Monday, gave up Wednesday. <laughs> it was just the genie was out of the bottle on that one. Uh, so you know, that, that that to me is the future going forward as well, isn't it? You know, Having people, enough people around to be able to support what I think is the organization's infection control program. And I think that's one of the things I saw biggest change in because when I started, I used to write the infection control program for the year and that was what I thought I could manage. Um, but now if the organization writes its own program and with the infection prevention control team are there to support the organization in their objectives – then I think that's been the truly transformational thing. You know, when you ask a division, what are you going to do for the next year? It's not what am I going to do for you? It's what are you going to do and how can I support you doing that? Then you're starting to change mindsets and people start to get a bit more ownership. And I think that's been the big difference. Yeah, and that that, that chimes loudly actually with the with the direction of travel that seems to be um, happening in the UK with the development of bigger and bigger super trusts that are mm. absolutely massive and very different in their composition. Um, and it's not very realistic to expect a relatively small corporate team to be delivering the infection control agenda across the organization. It has to be. For the benefit of global listeners, because we have people in many countries listening to this, what, what what would you describe as a large organization? Just give an idea of what actually it would comprise. You know, you now you move from one big London organization to another, but you know, what are the components of that organization just to give people an idea of the scale? So I suppose a typical large London NHS trust, we call them, but it's a big hospital group, uh, as most countries would call them, will, will usually have three, four, maybe even five diverse sites that may not even be massively close together, hmm. um, sometimes 20 miles apart, um, which were in, started out as individual independent organisations merged together 
and over a period of time pull together their policies and protocols into one. Um, some of them have um, adult and children's services, some of them have hyper-specialized services, many of them as, as part of what they do, um, and also often a range of community services that are run as part of the same organization. Again, bed numbers wise, roughly? Uh, inpatient beds pushing towards 2000. So, I mean, how do you go about running an infection prevention control service then for that size type of organization? Uh, how do you assess what you actually need and to go in your program? So I, th- I think it's I think it's looking at what what are the what are the key strategic issues that we're trying to address. So over the last eighteen months, being COVID central, that that's all we've been able to focus on. Yeah. Uh, and one of the key points that, that came out of my thinking around okay, let's look at the the three to five year window. What do we think should be our priorities over that sort of time frame? And I actually maybe counterintuitively put COVID right at the bottom of the list. Only because, not because I don't think COVID transmission in hospitals is important. I, t- I do think it's important. And over the mm. next winter, maybe next year as well, it, it's going to be high prominence in our, in our activity, and rightly so. But I, but I do think the focus on COVID that we've had to have has meant that some of our more strategic and more impactful priorities have been left behind. And a good example of that is antimicrobial stewardship which I've chosen as my number one priority to refocus on over the next three to five years. Um, if we look at the impact of the pandemic on antibiotic prescribing in our hospitals and in our communities generally, we've seen a big increase in prescribing of antibiotics. And that's both all antibiotics, just the burden of antibiotics that we're using. We've had a huge amount of undifferentiated respiratory infection turning up at the front door and at the EDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, staff who have been stretched and may not be used to the area they're working in, combined with critical care being under huge pressure, um, has resulted in in big short-term increases in prescribing. Um, and the, the proportion of uh, agents that are being prescribed have moved towards the broad spectrum antibiotics and away from the narrow spectrum antibiotics. And what we want to see is the, the opposite. We want to see a shift from the broad spectrum to the narrow spectrum agents which will result in less resistance development. Um, did they go down the broad spectrum route, do you think, because uh, labs were so stressed and pushed with testing for COVID, et cetera, that maybe they weren't getting results back as quickly, so they left people on broad spectrum? I don't know. That's a really good thought. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't looked at lab turnaround time, but it's very likely that that mm. happened. I mean, the labs, um, anyone working in the labs, my goodness me, they've done an incredible job. Haven't they? Yeah. Turning the wheels unbelievably quickly to develop a testing program for COVID and you know something's got to give so i'm sure turnaround times did did reduce slightly because you can't really focus until you know what you're focusing on i just wonder yeah, exactly. if that might have had an impact so you know in 20 years time we, we won't be talking about the COVID pandemic as a, as a live infection control priority i'm certain of that but we will be talking about antibiotic resistance and the need for antibiotic stewardship well in 20 years time i'm having to be talking at all to be honest <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about antibiotic stewardship. So, anyway, your number two priority yeah. then. So, number two is um, digital systems and getting mm. them uh, embedded, fit for purpose, uh, and active in supporting actual services. So, so quite a lot of this centres around the electronic patient record. Not all of it, but a big part of, of, of what is possible in the digital sphere with patient control centres on having an electronic patient record. Because once we have that, all the data is in the same place and in the same system. We have the patient journey. We have the the 
treatment, we have the diagnosis, we have whatever problems they might have, uh, we have all the devices and the lines and the, um, the, the other procedures that are done all recorded in the same place. And that allows us to be able to pull it out much more easily um, to facilitate things like semi-automated surveillance. So rather than going through, um, if anyone's been involved in, in any of the national PPS studies, you have a big paper form, you go through patient by patient, you ask all the same questions for all the same patients, and you end mm. up with brilliant data on the prevalence of healthcare-associated infection, which was 7% the last time it was done in the UK. Yeah. Uh, uh, SSI is being 15%. I think respiratory infections accounting about half of the, S of the healthcare associated infection, but it's painstaking. You can't do that routinely. Whereas if you have an electronic system, you can write algorithms in the system to pull in the patient information that you have to say, actually, uh, Mr. Otter on Beaver Ward has a high likelihood of having a surgical site infection because they've had a wound swab positive two days after their procedure, mm -hmm. please go review them. So, so it changes the workflows from generally uh, organism-based to more syndrome-based. Yeah, I'm completely with you on that one because prevalence surveys are great. Well, all they tell us actually is that our biggest health group of healthcare-associated infections are non-ventilator-associated healthcare-associated pneumonia, which Brett and I have rambled on about for quite some time and catheter-associated urinary tract infection, but we don't do routine surveillance on those because that would be in the, definitely the much-too-difficult box for time-consuming. Yeah. Um, but if you have an algorithm that starts pulling that sort of information out based on, you know, and I think it can be done reasonably well, to be honest. It won't be perfect. It won't be like a point-prevalence study where a trained observer is standing there looking at every patient. But if it's applied in a consistent manner, you can certainly track a trend, couldn't you? And you can start giving wards feedback on hang on a minute you're the worst ward in the hospital for giving people healthcare associated pneumonia how often are you walking these people around and how often are you cleaning their teeth just basics um, well not basics uh, heather would kill me for that uh, heather loved i gave a fantastic talk at ips a few weeks ago talking about fundamentals of care not basics i think that's a better word but you know, you know and it might make people think about the fundamentals of how they're actually managing people you know can they get catheters out so i i completely with you on that one it, it can only focus minds and attention a little bit so that's that's a good one yeah and, and, and what you just said there actually made me think of something i hadn't really put in this way before in that um we, we often talk about that the uh, the, the challenges of, of talking about infections that, that we that we prevented mm -hmm. because we don't know about them. Whereas if you have really robust semi-automated surveillance systems across the organization, you can begin to say to your critical care, well, you haven't had a clavsy for, for three months. Well done. Let's complement yeah. that success, as well as identifying the areas that do seem off spec for further investigation. Completely agree. Giving people positive feedback is a lot more motivating than giving them negative feedback, actually. You know, at the beginning, you're going to give them a big number, probably, and it's all going to be go through the five stages of grief or they go through the denial, the bargaining, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, when it starts to get better, then yeah. they start to feed off success and then they get a bit more confident that they can actually reduce infection and you get into this confident success spiral. So. Uh, I think that's really quite useful. But at the moment, we just don't have the data to be able to give people something that means something to them. You know, yeah. So our data comes in and it goes up the organization and actually feeding dashboards down at a local level. And I think if you were going to do this, then you'd actually have to involve the clinicians in building the algorithms. Yeah. Because otherwise, they're not going to believe the algorithm's correct. 
So yeah. that sort of thing is really important early on, I think. You know, if, if, yeah. they, if they make their own, you know, yes, we'll accept that as an infection, then there's no comeback when you say you've got a high infection rate or here is, here is our data, let's have a look at this together and see what we can work on. Yeah. But if you just drop a number on them, it's just something you've made up. Yeah, well, so. I'd, be, I'd be skeptical. You would be. Yeah, of course. Well. Yeah, especially if it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the best form of attack is defense, isn't it? Well, defense is attack, generally. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's so, automated yeah. surveillance. And that sort of picks up surgical site infection surveillance a bit as well, doesn't it? Because unless you're measuring something, we just we talked about that a few weeks ago, so we, we won't go down that route. So number three, what's your number Come three on, priority? I've got more to oh, say on number oh, two. Okay, okay. Only because it's not all about the electronic patient record because I don't want people to think that this priority is dependent on having an electronic patient record because some people won't have that in the next three to five years. A lot of people won't have that. Probably the majority, certainly outside of mm. this country, wouldn't have mm. an electronic patient record on that time frame. But there's still a digital revolution in IPC that, that's coming and we need to embrace and be part of um, around rapid genomics and how that influences our outbreak management um, and our surveillance generally, better diagnostics and how that allows us to make in, improved decisions around stewardship, but around infection control generally. And data, data visualization as well is important. The way that we uh, package and present our data to internal external stakeholders I think can improve a lot. And you know, if we think minority report, maybe we can get there in that kind of window of a much more interactive way uh, of presenting data um, that our stakeholders can engage with, um, review, cut, challenge, and believe in uh, and act upon better. Certainly agree with that, you know, because we present data to people in the way we think they should look at it. But people don't think like us. And so actually doing a bit of work on how would you like to see this and what would mean something to you and actually often a diagram or whatever. I mean, I noticed you tweeted a nice paper that I'll stick in the in the links of the blog uh, at the weekend. And I, I thought that was really quite a nice way of going about it as well. But we don't actually ask people how and what they would want to know. We tell them what we think they should find important. But sometimes it isn't necessarily what they find important. But actually, we might be able to work with what they find important, and then it, we're you know we're starting to get to get into them listening to us. Really, gabbling a bit here. Already. Okay, we're running a little bit short of time now, so I'll just get get you to go to your third priority now. Okay, so third priority: uh, preventing gram-negative bloodstream infections. So these are some of the most important and devastating um, infections that can happen. And as you know, Martin, we can easily halve gram-negative associated PSIs. We've, really, <laughs> yes, we've, we've, we've debated this one, and I don't. You know, there's many things that are possible, and there are many things I thought impossible that we have achieved, like reducing C diff and MRSA bloodstream infections here in the UK and around around the world as well. But when the majority of gram-negative bloodstream infections coming from the community, unless you have a fantastic public health infrastructure, which I'm afraid the UK has recently demonstrated that it doesn't anymore. <laughs> then I don't think it's a, it's a goer. And to be honest, we still don't know what the causes are. You know, uh, treating people with antibiotics and, okay, if you've got an ESBL, it's going to be a little bit more challenging. But actually, why did you get the UTI in the first place? I'm, I, I'm not convinced we know quite as much about biofilms in bladders that, as we think we ought to know. And is that why infections persist for long periods of time? 
and there are probably people working in other spheres who have been working in biofilms for bladders for years and haven't talked to us about it. Um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, there's still a lot to learn about the most common infection, which is a UTI. I think. But you know, how 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 do you think? You think you can reduce by fifty percent? Yeah, I think we can reduce. I, I won't we can come down. I agree with that. I, I won't be beholden fifty percent because you know yeah. it's a it's a nice it's a nice target. Let, let's let's go for it. Let's try and reduce by fifty percent. But that's not the point, is it? The point is no. that, it, that we use that target as organisational emphasis on this issue that we think is important. Um, and if we miss the target, then more investment may follow. So you know, who knows? Let let's use whatever is available to us. Mm. Um, to get the best results. So I think the first the first part of it has to be your three-year-old thing where you know they just ask why. They always ask why. Yeah. We need to we need to really understand why these infections are happening and whether um what appears to be the root cause may be a, a symptom of a of a deeper, more fundamental root cause um in urinary infections, but it but in everything else. And, and the, there are some potential quick wins in terms of reducing infection, better hydration, yeah. better surveillance, better understanding of root causes, better antibiotic treatment in the hospital, but in the community. Um, I think all of those things can help us to design um, fairly straightforward interventions in for all inpatients and maybe some slightly more nuanced interventions for particular high-risk groups that I think could generate some yield in reducing these infections. But I do agree with you that if we really want to tackle this, we need to work in a different way mm. across the, the patient journey, starting in their home, in their lifestyle, in their health-seeking behavior, in the initial identification and management of infection, right through to, to when they, they come into us and become one of our patients. And, and unless we do that, we're not going to see the massive reduction in particularly E. coli because so much of it is about urinary infections that start in the community present in hospitals. And by that time, the, 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 the bloodstream infection subsequent to the secondary to the UTI is inevitable in yeah. some cases. Well, I, mean, I agree with you, though. There's plenty of things that can be chipped away at. Uh, you know, the, I still think it's likely there are too many urinary catheters used when unnecessary. I'm not sure they're always reviewed as often as they should be. Um, I did a piece of work years ago and found that a lot of them were going in for retention of urine when, in fact, the patient was bunged up to the eyeballs and, uh, you know, helping them ease the blockage in their bowels would have actually prevented the caster going in in the first place. So I think there are still plenty of targets out there for us in in acute care, which will make a difference. Um, but, yeah, the, the bigger picture is going to take a, a a lot more understanding, I think, to be able to then put into place interventions that we know work rather than the ones we think we do. Because, you know, we, we talk about hydration. We don't actually know that it's related to hydration or dehydration. We, we need some better data on that one. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, John. It's been fascinating. We will do this again, and I shall – well, we'll be looking at the re, the Reflections blog to see what you pick next, and we'll have another chat about that, I think, because um, it's, it's quite difficult to shut up when we get talking. Yeah, well, anyway. do you know what? I can't, I'm not going to shut up now. Can I just say one more thing? Oh, come on. Now? Okay. So I did, just the things I didn't talk about. I mean, I, I've picked those five things kind of nominally, mm -hmm. but there's other huge, important piece of work that we need to do. And I'm thinking around training and education of our own team and of the organization generally. Um, workforce issues and particularly a focus on mental health as we exit the pandemic and just talking about what we've been through with the pandemic. I, I, at this conference I was at on, on Friday, 
um, one of the team in my organization went through date by date the COVID pandemic. And I actually found it really quite emotional. And I'm not yeah. generally a very emotional person. <laughs> but I, I wasn't in floods of tears or anything. But, it, but you know, it, it brought it all back, the, the feelings and the, the, the enormity of the situation and the hopelessness we all felt at that time. So I think it's important to acknowledge that and make sure we're doing okay as mm. we as we begin to think about how we're going to manage things um, as the pandemic becomes more endemic. Yeah, I'm completely with you on the education because, you know, we, we control nothing. Everybody else does infection prevention, but we have to find a way of giving people information in the way that they're prepared to accept it. And that's sometimes, I think, asking them what do they think they don't know because a lot of people think they know a lot about infection control because they used to be a nurse once. But actually, it's, it's finding a way of giving them digestible, small bite information, and that may be resulting to things like short TikTok videos that go on just, just about an infection prevention-related subject. I mean, I don't do that what's sort that, of thing. What's that, Martin? I know, exactly, exactly. But it, but the youth, they, they do that sort of thing, and they make up a lot of the workforce. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I think we have to be more creative about the way we try and provide education to people or even i think stimulate their interests so that they actually go away and educate themselves you know because often people are told go away and learn about such and such but unless you're motivated to do it you're probably not going to do it so if you can throw out a few tasty tidbits that make people think you know i want to know more about that because i'll do that i'll think well, that sounds quite interesting i'm going to find out a bit more about that and then i go reading about it and then i become more knowledgeable about it then i become more motivated to learn a bit more about it so it's it's it, we, I think we we almost sure anglers trying to throw out bits of bait trying to get people to bite um, rather than just people who who tell people what we think we want them to know, but if it's not in a way that they want to receive that information, they're just not not going to take it on board. I don't think so. I'm completely with you on the education, and that is going to be the end. I'm afraid because we're over half an hour, which is a long one for us, but it's been a nice chat. I knew we were going to overrun anyway because it's impossible not to not to get chatting but uh, anyway thank you everybody thank you John uh, for joining me today and we will be doing this again pretty soon I should think thanks everyone thanks for joining us everybody see you again on the next edition of Infection Control Matters <laughs>